Welcome to Tea Time with Mary. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm a former bikini fitness model turned self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey friends, before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast episode is sponsored by my favorite books. Not literally, but I did create a book list for you with all of my favorite books for self-love and body image and self-confidence and just overall self-healing and growth. I am a huge personal growth person. And to be honest with you, a lot of the things that I talk about come from the books that I've read. I'm a big reader and I always tell my little sister, readers are leaders. And I love audiobooks. I love book books. I love Kindle. I love all the forms of books. Just give me all the goods. So I decided to create a book list for you with my top 25 favorite books. And I actually add to this list. So there's probably going to be more than 25 books on it. But I have narrowed it down to top 25 books that you need to read to start the self-love journey. I'm not saying you have to read all the books right now, but you should have this list handy dandy for when you're getting a book on Amazon or shopping in your Audible or whatever. So I've created this book list and you can get it at maryscupoftea.com slash books. And I will also put it in the show notes. And let me know how you like these recommendations by screenshotting what you're reading and tagging me in your Instagram stories. I always love seeing you use my recommendations. It just makes my whole day because we're like a little community. So anyways, maryscupoftea.com slash books. Go get it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Today, I am with a very special guest who I've been a big fan of for a while. Her name is Emily Nagoski, and you may know her because she has a best-selling book that I've recommended a lot called Come As You Are. Hi, Emily. Welcome. Hello. It's so exciting to talk to you. It's so exciting that you are here. Like I was telling you before we pressed record, I talk about like feeling sexually empowered and feeling good in your body and masturbating and giving yourself orgasms. But there's a lot of gaps uh, that are outside of my education and scope of work that I'm excited for you to fill in as a sex educator. It's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) Yep. So before we dive in, for those of you who may not be familiar with you, I want to read your bio. Uh, Emily Nagoski is a writer, sex educator, researcher, activist, and self-proclaimed nerd. Me too. Uh, Emily went to Indiana University for an MS in counseling psychology, and she continued on to earn a PhD in health behavior with a concentration in human sexuality. Now she's the award-winning author of the New York Times bestseller, Come As You Are, The Surprising New Science That Will Transform Your Sex Life, and her her new book, Burnout, was released last year in 2019, which she co-authored with her sister, Amelia, to help women end the cycle of feeling overwhelmed, exhausted, and just feeling not enough. Um, so you are up to some big things, especially for women or anybody who identifies as a woman. Um, so I'm curious, what is your personal connection to this work? And what was the, the journey, the evolution that led you to becoming a sex educator, an activist, and an advocate for for this type of work? Oh, gosh. Well, it uh, started in my very first year as an undergraduate. Um, I knew, so I'm, I've been a nerd my whole life, so I knew I was going to go to grad school for something. I had no idea what, so I thought I need some volunteer work on my resume to look like a good candidate for grad school. Uh, mm-hmm. And a guy on my floor was pre-med, and he said, hey, come be a peer health educator with me. And I was like, I like health. Sure. So I applied and I got accepted and I got trained to go into residence halls to talk about all kinds of health issues, nutrition, stress management, um, and also sexuality. And something I noticed in the training was I was the only one who didn't uh, respond to the sex training. Like when somebody said a genital word, I didn't go, (laughs) like, I I just like didn't have that automatic reflexive response. And I thought that might, that, that might be something. Um, so I was, my degree is in psychology with minors in cognitive science and philosophy. And I kind of had the plan as I went through my degree of becoming a clinical neuropsychologist because I loved the brain stuff. I wanted to help people with traumatic brain injury or stroke, but Man, over the course of my undergrad, volunteering as a sex educator and then as a sexual violence prevention educator and ultimately as a sexual assault crisis responder, that work made me like who I am as a person. 
in a way that the intellectual stuff just never could. So even though I still love the brain science and it shows up a lot in my work, uh, it's the direct teaching that makes me feel like my best self. And so that's the path I chose. Mm, I've had, um, we've actually been so blessed to have a couple of researchers on the podcast um, and people who are nerds and have (laughs) their PhDs and and go on to do this work. And that's what so many of them say is that uh, they almost like live vicariously through their students and become very passionate about just seeing, um, you know, the missing pieces of the puzzle. And that's what they try to fill in. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, my students teach me to be a better teacher. The reason it's actually because of my experience with students that I wrote Come As You Are in the first place. Um, I taught a class at Smith College, a small women's liberal arts college here in Western Massachusetts, where I live. Um, The title of the class was Women's Sexuality. And uh, the, the last question on my final exam was just tell me one important thing you learned over the course of these weeks. Uh, you get the two points, no matter what you say, it matters that you get the two points. Just just take the question seriously and tell me one thing you learned. And I thought they were going to point out some specific piece of the science, like attachment theory or mm-hmm. evolutionary biology. And instead, I had 187 students and more than half of them just wrote something like, I learned I'm normal. Mm. I learned I'm not broken just because I'm different from other women. I learned that I can trust my body and I am normal. Um, I don't know if you've ever graded final exams in your life, but it's not usually like this. I was sitting in my office with tears in my eyes, feeling like something really important had happened. Hang on one sec while I fix my microphone, which is having issues this morning. Oh, no worries at all. I know that's probably making a weird noise. Sorry about that. Oh, no. No, it's all good. We will edit this out or we might keep it in because it's natural. And normal. <laughs> it's just you know, like these are this part. Never in my life did I think that part of my like professional skill that I needed would be like how to speak into a microphone and fix mm-hmm. it when your cords aren't doing the thing. Anyway, so um, it was as I was grading those exams, seeing student after student just saying, I learned I'm normal, I'm normal, I'm not broken, I can trust my body, I can believe what my body is telling me, even if it's different from what my culture says or what my partner says. Um, grading final exams with tears in my eyes, that is the day that I decided to write Come As You Are, because there was something clearly really important to my students about feeling normal, and mm-hmm. I wanted to do it again, and I wanted to do it on a much bigger scale. Uh, so that was the whole origin of come as you are is in my teaching. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And honestly, that's why I picked up your book actually, when I was a college student, um, just feeling like, like I'm not normal for various reasons, which I'll share more as we go on. But a lot of them have to do with like sexual shame and the images of women that we see. I'm not even going to say in the media as much as I'm going to say like in porn, um, that is often, just clouds our perception of what normal bodies look like, let alone function like. Um, And that was what your book really uncovered for me. That's really the whole, whole premise of it is like, you are normal and you are okay and you are perfect. Um, And all our sexualities is different. Actually in your book, you said there are as many sexualities as there are people. Could you elaborate more on what you mean by that? Because I think a lot of people hear sexuality and they think, Oh, either, you know, you like men or you like women. Um, there's just so much more to it. Um, yeah. So I, I, my training as a sex educator began when I was 18. And it was basically this really intensive, the first five years in particular, of just discovering over and over and over again that literally every single thing I had ever been taught about sexuality up to that point was wrong. Every mm-hmm. single aspect of it from sexual orientation to pleasure, arousal, desire, orgasm, genitals, how they look and how they work, literally everything, relationship dynamics, literally every single thing was wrong. So when I'm teaching a class, I recognize I'm not just starting from scratch. I'm having to uh, present information that needs to replace Mm. decades of false things that students have absorbed, whether they've been um, explicitly taught, some of the messages are explicit and others are just implicit. They're implied and they're hidden. A lot of sexual shame messages, some of them are explicit, but a lot of them are just these like buried, hidden messages. 
So the more you learn about the science of sexuality, the more you learn that uh, human beings, there's no two alike. We are all different from each other. And I can get super nerdy about this if you want to, about the like evolutionary biology, about how the purpose of sex as a reproduction strategy is variety, is to create a new individual who is utterly unique and different from any other individual within a population. Variety is the point. And so celebrating sexuality is celebrating diversity and the ways that we are all different from each other and the ways that our differences hold us together. Mm, I want to hone in on that real quick because I think, um, like you said, traditional teachings in biology is that things are a certain way and nature wants them to be like this. And that is why, I don't know why people confuse God with evolution, but that is why God created man and woman um, because they want it to be a certain way. And now what we're learning, and, and I'm grateful to have a partial liberal arts education where I took a lot of sex and gender courses, is that what you said, that's actually not the case. Nature wants variety because that's what not only makes us survive as a species, but also um, thrive and evolve in the way that we have. So could you just like reiterate that a little bit more and, and talk nerdy to me, girl? <laughs> For sure. So um, if you look at a lot of sexually reproducing species, they are dimorphic species where there's sort of a male category and we call the males the ones who make the sperm. Uh, and then there's the female category and the females are the ones who make the eggs. And then they have all different systems of getting eggs to sperm. So if you're a salmon female, you just like deposit all these eggs on the bottom of the river floor and then a male will come along and ejaculate all over them. And that is sexual reproduction between male and female salmon. Um, if you are a pea hen, um, then you select from among the peacocks by looking at their tails and seeing how many of those eyes there are and what their condition is because those eyes are an advertisement for what their overall genetic health is. And you choose the best one who fertilizes your eggs internally and then you lay them and you sit on them. That's reproduction with males and females when you are a pea hen or cock, <laughs> peafowl. That's what they're called, peafowl. Um, and then we get to uh, the large mammals. If you're a gorilla, gorillas are a sexually dimorphic, re sexually reproducing species with males and females, and the males are the ones with the sperm and the females are the ones with the eggs. And then you get to humans. And while at a population level, if you're just looking at biology, we can say like, you know, as a population, as a species, we are sexually reproducing where the females have the eggs and the males have the sperm. For some reason, we have, as a species have decided that the kinds of gametes our bodies produce mean something with a capital <clears throat> about who we are as people. So we have made up fictions. We tell stories. We invented totally not biologically relevant categories and roles that just because your body creates a certain kind of reproductive cell, that means you must have certain personality traits. So you must fall in love with a certain kind of person. You must enjoy a certain kind of sex, or you must have uh, certain hopes, dreams, and aspirations in your life. None of those things have anything to do with the kind of reproductive cells your body creates or the shape that your genitals are in, it's not even necessarily very fair to say that our genitals are really different. So when you look at a package of genitals on the day a person is born, you look at their body and based on the shape of their genitals and no other part, we declare it's a boy or it's a girl. And when you look at those body parts, they look different to us because we have learned to see differences in the same way that people's faces look different to us because we have learned to see those differences. Um, but everybody's face is different from every other face, but all the same parts are in the same general orientation. The same mm -hmm. is true for genitals, all the same parts organized in different ways, but with the same general orientation. So uh, on a body that we go, it's a boy, there's uh, this uh, stretchy, uh, very sensitive body part that fills with blood during sexual arousal. And we call that the penis. On uh, the body that we go, it's a girl, there's a stretchy uh, organ that feels pleasurable sometimes in the right circumstances, and it fills with blood when you stimulate it, and that's the clitoris, and they are biological 
homologs. They have the same origin. So their fetal development, they came from the same basic hardware. And about six and a half weeks into gestation, there's this hormone flood that changes the shape of the way that basic hardware organizes itself. Um, the same goes for the scrotum. We see the sort of like stretchy skin. And as that person uh, reaches adolescence, the hair is going to grow on that stretchy skin. Um, and then there's stretchy skin on the it's a girl package of genitals. And as that person reaches adolescence, hair is going to grow there. In uh, the first six weeks of gestation, that's called the labioscrotal tissue because it could become either labia or scrotum, depending what happens in the hormonal environment in the womb. Uh, and if you get up close and personal with a scrotum, you'll see a seam running down the center, which is where the, the tissue knit together. And if things have been a little bit different in the chromosomes or the hormonal environment, uh, then that tissue would have developed into labia instead of scrotum. It's all the same parts organized in different ways. And all of the ideas we have about how people are naturally this or that based on the shape of their genitals is a fiction. Mm. I want people to like hear your voice saying that because I know I, I read your book on audio, which you read it um, to us. So I hear your voice saying to me all the same parts organized in different ways. Right. I see um, it in literally every chapter of the book. Yeah. And it's needed. I mean, I, I needed that reassurance. We need it because we've grown up for decades of our lives hearing the exact opposite. Um, and I also needed to hear that it's fiction the all the meaning that we attach to it so what I'm hearing you say is that so much of it is socialized it's not necessarily biology a lot of it is socialized what we decide about this set of genitals or this set of genitals yeah when in doubt assume it's cultural and social Mm -hmm. almost nothing basically if it is not literally your body tissue it's social Mm. wow so um Something that popped into my head when you were talking about the different animals, one thing I've heard, and this may be a myth and feel free to say if it is, but I've heard that dolphins um, are the only ones that feel sexual or the only other mammals that feel sexual pleasure uh, besides... No, no, no. That's not true, right? For sure, all mammals feel sexual pleasure. I don't know about species outside the mammal family, but I know for sure all mammals do. I expect that other species do but I I don't know I just don't know mm-hmm. so all like our I guess where I'm getting at is the the reason why we socialize ourselves in this way unlike other mammals where the examples that you draw what I really what I really got from that is they're not attaching meaning to it they're just reproducing whereas we are constantly attaching meaning to ourselves and what things look like and what things should be like and it's filled with expectations and it's loaded emotionally charged um and I think that's very very draining for us as humans to constantly it is the blessing and the curse of being a human being let Mm -hmm. me tell you about the anglerfish so um in finding Nemo when all there are, all the main characters are in the dark and suddenly a light appears and there's this like big hairy tooth monster with the glowy thing that dangles off a thing. That's an anglerfish. Mm. That's actually a female anglerfish. Mm. The male anglerfish is maybe one tenth the size of the female. Uh, and it doesn't have any of like the big teeth or the big glowy thing. It doesn't have any of those features. It's a very plain looking fish. And the way they reproduce is uh, the female sort of oozes a hormone trail when it's ready to reproduce. And the male, they're deep sea anglerfish, so it's sort of difficult to find each other. So mm-hmm. the male follows this trace of hormones. Then he bites into her side and gradually his face melts into her until his, his uh, vascular system actually melds with her. and uh, he his gametes go into her body that way. Hmm. So do you think there has ever been an anglerfish who worried that his gametes were not big enough? Hmm. Do you think there's ever been a female anglerfish who worried that her hormone trail wasn't attractive smelling enough? Hmm. No. We are the only species who worry about the shape and size of our genitals. We're the only ones who worry 
about what it means that our bodies look or act a certain way. We're the only ones. And it's a product of the fact that we are so good at um, seeing into the future, anticipating what's going to happen, learning from the past. It's also a product of the fact that we are such a densely social species. We are not built to do things alone. We are built to be collaborative. We're almost a hive species. Um, Jonathan Haidt, the social psychologist, calls us 99% chimp, 10% bee. And Hmm. so we worry about feeling accepted and welcomed into the human family. And part of the criteria in order for us to feel normal, to feel like we are a part of the human family is for our sexuality to conform to whatever our culture taught us is normal. And the difficulty is that every culture has these fictions, these lies that it tells us about what counts as normal sexuality. So if people change only one thing in their lives after hearing this, it's to notice the reflexive judgments you have about your sexuality and your body and the reflexive judgments you have about other people and their sexualities and just begin to question what purpose that serves. Is it making your life better? Is it making the world a better place? Or would it make your life better and make the world a better place if we could all be more neutral, like somebody else's sexual choices? If that person is not your partner, their sexual decision-making really has nothing to do with you. And Mm -hmm. so why would you waste time and energy having an opinion about their sexual choices? And are you in any way making the world better for beating yourself up, for not conforming with some social story that you got told about how your sexuality is supposed to be instead of recognizing what your sexuality is and loving it precisely as it is right now, recognizing that it will surely change over your lifespan. Mm. That's something that I needed to hear when the first time I picked up, now I'm reading your book a second time. Um, And there was one exercise that you had us do right at the beginning, uh, which I didn't do at first. And then I did it, I forced myself. Um, But it has to do with like embracing and accepting our genitalia. And you can't really embrace and accept what you do not see. (laughs) Um, So you talk about like sitting in front of the mirror and just looking and getting curious about your body. I think we forget that like I talk a lot about like embracing your body. And I think I even forget that our vulva is a part of our body or whatever genitalia you have is your body too. um, And that that needs to be treated with love and respect, just like any other part of your body, just like your stomach or your thighs. And I know, man, if you got raised in a body where everybody was like, it's a girl, then for sure, there are a lot of body parts that you have been taught to criticize and judge and deal with harshly. And we have to unlearn all those things, but our genital shame that we have been taught is one of those things that we don't have to worry so much about getting negative feedback from other people because not that many people get to see our genitals and the Mm. ones who do are the lucky ones. Mm. Yeah. So we can love and embrace that part of ourselves without having to worry about like cultural backlash of people feeling bad about the fact that you love your body. Like, how dare you love your body? (laughs) So I think even though it feels difficult and people do resist it, uh, I think the genitals are a great place to start with body acceptance. Mm, That's true because it's the most intimate part of you that, like you said, other people don't really get to see as much. It's for you. Yeah. Mm. Um, what advice do you have for someone who does like the exercise in your book looks and, and starts to try to embrace, um, their genitals and the way they look like, but is still feeling insecure about them and the way they look, I know, especially, like I said, um, I don't regularly watch porn, but I have seen it and it looks totally different than mine. Um, (laughs) and you know, there's media literacy that goes into that, like knowing that, that's not what everybody's looks like. Um, but you can't help but feel a little bit insecure. And I know a lot of mothers who have given childbirth, for example, my best friend just gave birth. Um, there's just a lot that goes into that, seeing your body change like that. What mm-hmm. advice do you have for more, more comfort and I suppose confidence with our genitalia? Yeah, you are right that there's a media literacy component that comes with it. The short version of that is don't watch or look at anything that makes you feel worse about your body the way it is right now. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean that about your genitals and every other body part. Just don't. I know that on some level, a lot of us have been taught to f- believe that feeling critical of ourselves and being made to feel like shit about our bodies is um, a necessary and growthful experience. It is not. <laughs> there is nothing growthful or nourishing about feeling critical and judgmental of your body. Nothing. And I know I can't convince people of that right now. I could give like a whole hour long talk just about that. But the short version is just don't consume media that makes you feel worse. The whole point of that media is that people who feel like shit buy more shit. Mm. They want you to feel like shit so that you will purchase things to make yourself feel better and to feel like you are moving closer to this culturally constructed aspirational fantasy ideal. They mm-hmm. want you to feel like shit on purpose so that you will waste your money trying to change something that is perfect and beautiful and glorious already. Mm. The second part of it is to keep looking. Do it every day. Do it every week. Keep looking. Um, when, and write down everything you see that you like. Whatever that is. And of course, when you try to do this, the first thing that will happen is your brain will be crowded with images and thoughts that you have been taught are like, here's what your body's supposed to look like. And here's all the things you're supposed to feel critical about. um, And here's all the things you're supposed to be disgusted by. That is fine. You're just going to set those. You can have those self-critical thoughts literally any other time. Right now, you're just going to see, write down the things that you like. And doing this over and over and over again trains your brain to begin to recognize what a freaking freaking miracle your body is all by itself exactly the way it is right now regardless of whether or not it conforms to some fantasy ideal that doesn't exist in real life Mm, can i get an amen on a thursday (laughs) (laughs) yes uh exactly exactly that was so beautifully said and the reminder that i needed as well um, shifting gears into, well, on your, on your TED talk, actually, um, you talk about how, well, and in your book as well, you talk about how we kind of have this like two part system of, I don't know if the proper term is sexuality, but of our sexual arousal. Am I addressing that correctly? Yeah. The mechanism in your brain that controls sexual response. Mm. Okay. I would love to to hear what that two-part system is because the reason why I ask is I promote masturbation a lot on my Instagram because I think it's a huge part of, of self-care and learning to, to love your body um, and explore it, get to know it, like so many benefits. Um, but the question that I get a lot of the times is I struggle having an orgasm or I feel so much sexual shame. I can't even fathom the idea of touching myself lovingly and bringing myself pleasure. Um, Or, you know, this was me just a year ago before I even found my vibrators. I, one time I told um, my boyfriend that I I don't even know if I've ever had an orgasm. And he got really disgruntled about that. I was like, what do you mean? And I'm like, well, I don't know. People are saying that it's supposed to be this big, amazing thing. And I don't know if it's this big, amazing thing for me. And I just, there's so many questions about orgasms, what could help them, inhibit them. Um, and the two-part system really helped me understand. And specifically yes. in your TED Talk, you brought up one thing that just really landed with me that was like, if you live in a society, which most of us do, that has been telling you that your body is wrong and that sex is bad and dirty and gross and you're a slut if you engage in it, yeah. then that is something that is going to mentally, like subconsciously inhibit your sexual liberation and thus the amount of pleasure that you feel in the bedroom, whether with yourself or with a partner. Um, Yeah. Could you speak more into that and tell us about this two-part system that is so needed to know? Yes. And when I learned about it in the late nineties, it transformed everything that I had ever thought I knew about sexuality. So here's the deal. It's called the dual control model of sexual response. And it posits that they're just like every other system in your brain, sexual response is governed by a dual control mechanism that has a sexual accelerator or gas pedal that notices all the sex-related information in the environment. That's anything at all that you um, see, hear, smell, touch, taste, or crucially think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as related to sex. And it sends a turn-on signal that's familiar to many of us. 
But at the same time and in parallel, you have a sexual break. You have actually two different breaks that are noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now. Everything that you see, hear, smell, touch, taste, think, believe, or imagine that your brain codes as a potential threat. And when people are struggling around pleasure, arousal, desire, orgasm, sometimes it's because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator, but very often it's because there's too much stimulation to the brakes. And exactly, growing up in a culture that teaches you that sex is uh, dirty, dangerous, disgusting, and P.S., if you're not really good at it, nobody's ever going to love you. Wait, what? What? Is it what? If you learn that, is, does, is that going to hit the accelerator? No. Yeah, it's going to teach your brain to keep the brakes on all the time. In fact, it's more complicated than that because when your brain experiences a sex-related stimulus, it, that's going to activate the brake, which has learned that the sex-related stimulus is something to feel terrible about. So put the brakes on. And uh, the process of moving toward orgasm is this dual process of turning on the ons and turning off the offs so that shame people feel about experiencing pleasure, um, even worry about orgasm itself hits the brakes. So it's this sort of like wicked, ironic process where the harder you try to have an orgasm, the less likely it is you'll be able to have an orgasm. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's evidence-based interventions for making it possible. Um, one part of it absolutely can be getting a vibrator because vibrators provide an intensity of stimulation that organic stimulation just can't. Like it hits the accelerator like nothing else. Mm -hmm. um, then there are all the strategies for reducing the stimulation of the, ex of the break when the accelerator is being stimulated, um, which is mostly a mindfulness practice in addition to come as you are, uh, which has two appendices. One is uh, a series of exercises for learning how to have your first orgasm. And another is an exercise for learning to have an extended orgasm. So an orgasm that you sustain over multiple minutes um, but in addition to that, there's also the Come As You Are workbook, which has a whole chapter of worksheets and exercises specifically about untangling the knots that got tied in our sexualities by our family of origin and our culture of origin uh, so that we can access the pleasure that is the birthright of our bodies. If you got born with a body, you get pleasure. It comes with. And you're allowed to access it regardless of what your family of origin says. And one of the things that I think is important is that none of us got to choose our family that raised us and the messages they put in our brains, and none of us got to choose the culture that shaped our sexuality early on. So it is no fucking fair that some of us get this really toxic stuff that builds a wall between us and our own pleasure. But if we are willing to put in the practice of dismantling that wall, it is so worth it because mm -hmm. it means we get access to our own bodies, maybe for the first time ever in our lives. Mm, that's so powerful. Feeling like your body is your own and not for the pleasure or the, the gaze of other people. Yeah, it's, it's a revolution. There are reasons why people don't want you to do that. Mm. Oh, t tell me more about that. I mean, there's the patriarchy. That's yeah. the first thing that comes into my There's, mind. Exactly. The or as a, a student in my class, I was like, so what do you think is the reason why you haven't learned all this stuff before? And a student raises her hand and goes, the patriarchy. <laughs> Whenever I write the patriarchy now, I write it as the patriarchy. Ugh. Total mood. For sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, seriously. So how would you, I really resonate with what you said, like the more you try to quote, achieve an orgasm. I always try to tell um, anybody I'm responding to that it's not something to achieve because that just adds more pressure um, and is probably going to hinder rather than, than help. Um, so for, for people who are struggling with that, like I said, whether by themselves or with a partner, um, I'm curious, how would you like describe an orgasm? Like what does that level of pleasure feel like? And and why do we I want it? All orgasms are different from each other. Some of them 
do feel like a connection with the divine and like you're dissolving into the universe and merging with your partner and they can feel like this explosion so that the stars turn into rainbows. Some of them are like that. Some of them are this like small experience that you're like, well, that was fun. It's like, yeah, to the next day. I mean, that was pizza. <laughs> Some of them yeah. are annoying and frustrating. Some of them are actively unwanted. So I would not describe the sensation of an orgasm except to say that they vary from each other from day to day and from context to context. Uh, the definition I use of orgasm is that it is the spontaneous involuntary release of uh, literal physical sexual tension in your body. So as you get more and more aroused, more and more of your muscles begin to contract. Uh, so you might notice yourself holding your breath, you might notice your feet pointing um, and your butt and abdominal muscles getting tense, your wrists and feet might uh, lock up. That's all like just physical tension building up in your body. And there will be this spontaneous involuntary release of all of that tension. I think that's so important for people to hear because like I shared earlier, when I mentioned to my then partner that like, I don't know if I've had an orgasm before, um, he was like really, really offended. Um, and I think for people who are exploring this, the, a big concern is like, I don't want my partner to be offended. Um, thinking right, so that like, can you not- And why he would take that personally? What was that? Why, why would he take it personally? Because mm, it, it's your body. Yeah, I guess men especially have been taught that they're supposed to do something to a woman to make her feel this certain way. Yeah. Um, and if they don't, then they've failed. Right. Yeah. You talking about your orgasms as like, I don't know, it's not like this thing that, of you know, it doesn't make you do the ah, 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 thing you see in porn. Sorry about that noise. Um <laughs> And it, it, part of the, I mean, women get one script of, it, on the day you're born, they say, it's a girl, they give you a script of how your sexuality is supposed to work. And it's a boy, and you get a totally different, very incompatible script of how your sexuality is supposed to work. Mm -hmm. And then it's like getting uh, two actors together to read a scene, and they have a different scene. Mm -hmm. Like, Bleh. Yeah. So, and, and part of the script that is given to men is that they're supposed to already know everything and they're supposed to be able to perform, get erections on demand and uh, give their partners orgasms fast and big and probably multiple or else they are failures. And if they ever have to ask a question about sexuality, they have failed. If there's ever anything they didn't already know about sexuality, they have already failed. So there's this huge cultural script is actually a barrier to them being spectacular sex partners. But if they can let go of that stuff, there's a new book that came out this year called Magnificent Sex best title ever, maybe, um, by Peggy Kleinplatz and Dana Maynard, uh, where it talks about people who self-identify. So they interviewed dozens of people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives, magnificent sex, optimal sexual experiences. And one of the questions they ask was, how, how'd you get there? How do, you, how do you do it? Like, what had to happen for you to become a person who has this sexuality? First of all, average age at first optimal sexual experience, first magnificent sex, 55. What? So. Oh my God, Emily, seriously, 55? So, time. Oh my God. Okay. But that also is a testament to how powerful these scripts are because when they're asked, how did you get here? They said, well, I had to unlearn everything I thought I knew about gender roles and bodies and sex and pleasure and communication and safety and listening. Wow. I had to peel it all the way down to just what my body was experiencing and what my partner's body was experiencing and how to be aware of what was going on with my partner in the moment at the same time that I'm aware of what's going on with my body in the moment. That's the skill right there. That's all it is, is being attuned to your partner at the same intensity and level that you're attuned to yourself. And a lot of us, man, if you got raised as a girl you were taught that other people's opinions about your body are more trustworthy than the signals your body is sending you by itself. You got taught to ignore that stuff, to live sort of from the neck up and ignore everything else that was happening. So yeah. just learning to tune into your own bodies. One of the reasons I love the idea of just like, hey, masturbate. Mm -hmm. It will help. Everything will be better. <laughs> really? Because it asks people to spend time 
paying attention to the signals of their body, to the sensations that are happening all over their body. When you masturbate, don't just go right for your genitals. Notice all of your many body parts. Notice all the different kinds of sensations, not just like light touch and deep touch, though those both matter, but there's also stretching sensations and there's temperature change sensations. There's all different kinds of uh, sensations. Vibration is a like type of sensation. Pain sensations, even in the right context, when you're already super turned on, a sensation that in a different context might potentially hurt can mm-hmm. contribute to a sexual sensation. Yeah. But only by practicing noticing can we become aware of what our bodies are capable of. Mm. My beginner masturbation starts with just think about your genitals mm-hmm. for like 10 minutes. Keep your attention tuned to that area of your body and just notice what happens. And there are some people who get really horny just by like lying there and thinking about their genitals. They experience <laughs> a lot of blood flow. And there are some people who sob mm. for 10 minutes thinking about their genitals because they've just absorbed so much shame around that part of their bodies. It's like they have never before turned to that part of themselves. And they require kindness and compassion from themselves turned toward that part of themselves, maybe for the first time ever. Wow. I truly believe that masturbation is one of the greatest acts of self-care and self-love and fighting the patriarchy. Um, Because whether you're at that phase where you're unlearning all these things that you've picked up in our toxic society or you're um, you know experiencing pleasure or you're both at the same time or mm-hmm. sometimes this sometimes that either way like you're still doing so much for for yourself and for people as a whole and it does not have to involve orgasm if you have an orgasm great if you don't have an orgasm the point of it is to experience the sensations of your body and feel what pleasure is like in your body. Mm. What pleasure is, learn how it changes, experience the landscape of sensation that's available to you, explore the whole terrain. Mm -hmm. Just one corner of the terrain. It's a really neat, interesting corner (laughs) that if you choose to explore it, there's a lot to get to. And there's a whole lot of other stuff to get to know about your body. Mm -hmm. I once had a woman in her mid-20s tell me that when she was in high school, all the girls believe that if you masturbate, uh, you will not be able to have an orgasm with a partner. And I just, in in case there's anybody else who ever heard that, the opposite is true. Yeah, for sure. When you can notice pleasure in your body when you're by yourself, it gives you an anchor to return to when, because a thing that happens, if you get raised to be a girl, you also get taught to prioritize other people's feelings and sensations above your own, no matter what. Um, so you begin having a sexual experience with a partner and all your attention shifts away from you and onto making sure you're meeting this partner's expectations and that they're satisfied and they're happy. Um, and uh, it's a skill to develop to be able to like pay attention to your partner and also stay attuned to you. But the more practice you have of tuning into you, Uh, the easier it will be to sustain connection so that when your partner says, do you like that? (laughs) You will know the answer because if you get raised as it's a girl and your partner says, do you like that? What's the right answer? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes people, sometimes it truly does feel good. Sometimes, uh, it does not feel good, but you really don't want to hurt your partner's feelings. And so you're just like, sure. Yeah which leads to all kinds of bad things because now your partner thinks that whatever they're doing is what feels good. And now they're going to keep doing it, even though yeah. it's not what you like. And sometimes you truly don't even know whether it feels good or not. And so you just say yes to cover the fact that you don't know whether mm-hmm. you like it or not. We are not taught how to experience pleasure. We're taught to, and especially if your accelerator is being stimulated at the same time as your brake, you're going to have ambivalence about mm-hmm. that sensation. So you may both like it and not like it at the same time. So when your partner says, do you like that? And the answer is like, yes and no. How do, you, how do you have that conversation in the middle of a sexual experience? This is why masturbation is so great is because it teaches you to recognize what pleasure even feels like. 
Mm, Wow. And I can, yeah, I can attest to that and in so many examples in my personal life. But one thing that popped into my head, the first orgasm, like the first time I remember having like a really pleasurable sexual experience and not just like mediocre, my partner literally said two words to me. And the two words were just relax. And that sent me flying. And I, I still think about that moment because it's like, wow, like that's, that's, that's something really powerful to say to somebody, especially like you said, if you're raised as a girl, that's not something that you're told, like the message of your pleasure is important. I got you. Um, and when you're masturbating or exploring your own body or engaging in any act of self-care for that, for that matter, that's really what you're telling yourself is I got you. Like I am here for you. I am here for you. That is the technical definition of trust. When the person you're with is there for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I will. So I'm going to go a little bit in a darker direction because I've absolutely heard the story explicitly of someone whose partner said, just relax. No, just relax. Um, during sexual assault. So what Mm -hmm. mattered is not the words the person says. It matters that you trusted that person that you could relax while that person was there. It's not about the words. It's about the connection that you shared with that person. Mm -hmm. That's a really important distinction. Thank you for pointing that out because that didn't even cross my mind. Yes, exactly. It was that like trust and that like level of, you know, I'm here for you and you're safe with me. Yeah, that I got you. Whatever happens, you're going to be safe. Exactly, exactly. And another thing that I wanted to share is... um, you were talking about, you know, the expectations, how those, the expectations that you have of sex or masturbating or orgasms can often hinder your pleasurable experience or like yeah. you said, like conflicted feelings. Um, and one thing that's really helped my sex life a lot, and it's been great, but the thing that we were kind of thinking about is like, why have, why do we just kind of stop having sex when we're like really busy? Why is it not on our minds? Um, and for me, like I, I want sex to be something that I experience often and I'm not going to define how often it is because I know it's different for everybody. Mm-hmm. But one thing that helped my relationship a lot is to like, take off the pressure of sex being this penetrative act that lasts X amount of time and creates <laughs> X amount of result and <laughs> that has to look this way, right? Because right. that's so much pressure. And it's like, when we let go of that and we're like, sometimes sex is just a little bit of foreplay or, or, or like, you know, um, whatever, like a smack on the butt or something pleasurable or a hot makeout session. Like so many adults don't just have a hot makeout session um, because they, they kind of just skip over so many of those parts that can bring so much pleasure. And mm. I love that you highlighted that um, masturbation can really be just laying there and think about your genitals and that can make you horny too. Um, And there's so many ways to experience pleasure with yourself and with a partner and it doesn't have to be loaded with expectations or, or create this result that you've seen in the media. Yeah, we have these scripts in our head, right? From like the order of operations, basically like who does what in what order and what constitutes the end Usually it's his orgasm. Um, And what counts as like the normal script. And the truth is there is no script. Like you're just improvising. Mm -hmm. Any people who are consenting peers, as long as everybody is glad to be there and free to leave whenever they want to, there's no such thing as normal or abnormal. You can do, if you want to roll around like puppies, you can do that. If you want to fuck your partner's armpit, you get to do that. There's actually a word for it. It's called axillary intercourse. Oh my goodness. Okay. People love it when there's like a word for a thing. It feels validating that they had a word. Someone came up to me after a talk and was like, so here's the thing. I, I just, I know you're going to say that it's normal, but I just have to ask. Um, I really love it when my partner puts his penis between uh, the arches of my feet when the soles of my feet are pressed together. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yes, that's normal. And let's, let's see. Um, oh no, it wasn't, it wasn't penis penetration. It was licking because the word we can't, I love it when my partner like licks the arches of my feet when the ball, when the soles of my feet are pressed together. You can imagine that, right? Yeah. So I was like, okay, so you, let's use like the medical Latin words. Let's call it interplantar linctus. Mm. <laughs> between the plantar, like plantar tendon, like plantar fasciitis, right? Interplantar linctus. 
there you go. There's a name. Literally, whatever you want to do, you are allowed to do as long as everybody's glad to be there and free to leave if they want to. The words sound kind of sexy, actually. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love that so much. Um, Thank you so much for being a source of comfort and for reminding us that we're normal and that our our pleasure matters and that it's important. And as long as everyone's happy and consenting, um, then there's nothing that is on or off the table. Um, It's just a matter of exploration. Yeah. I love that. Emily, where can we find you, work with you, um, read your book? Your, your book is actually included in my, I have a list of um, books that I think everybody should read. Oh, Self, yay. Self-love books. And yeah, I think we have that um, little thing at the beginning of this podcast. So um, your book is on there as well. It's called Come As You Are. And then your latest book, Burnout. Um, can you tell us more about where to find you online? I am mostly active on the Instagrams these days, E. Nagoski, first initial, last name. Um, and that's a lot of pictures of my dogs, basically. Uh, there's Come As You Are, Come As You Are Workbook, and Burnout. And this year, I am, I'm making a podcast, actually, with my sister called The Feminist Survival Project 2020, which is for anyone who feels overwhelmed and exhausted by everything they have to do and still worries that they are not doing enough. Mm. Um, and that's FSP2020 on Instagram. And uh, we're recording this during the pandemic, which um, my doctorate is from a school of public health. So I take the public health aspect really seriously. So I am not doing any in-person things for the foreseeable future, basically. Uh, But uh, there are, what are there? My dog like put her face in my uh, face and it distracted me from what there is. So, oh, oh, oh. Uh, I'm going to begin making a Come As You Are podcast, a sexuality podcast. And the purpose of that is going to be taking these myths that we're all carrying around and trying to find their origins, like reading antique sex manuals and trying to find like the first place somebody wrote down some ridiculous myth like masturbation girls hair on the palms of your hands. (laughs) Where does that come from? Why does anybody believe that? Yeah, I am so excited for that. (laughs) So stay tuned. Awesome. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you for your time, your wisdom and your, your empowerment. I think that I'm walking away. I'm excited to turn to the appendix appendices of your books. Um, those guides that you recommended and I'm walking away feeling sexy. Yay! <laughs> Mission accomplished. Um, thank you so much everyone for listening. Make sure to check out Emily's books and her upcoming podcast and follow her on Instagram. And I will talk to you all next week. Bye.